Hello, friends. John Eldridge here. Welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast in Easter week, the climactic week of the Christian calendar, the end of Lent, uh, if those of you have been observing that, and really the crescendo of the story that we have all joined our stories to. This is a wonderful, powerful, rich week. What I wanted to try and do this week is just pull our thoughts back in to some pieces of the story. I'm sure that many of you are going to have your own church celebrations and personal observances, and you've got Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday. So, this is just meant to be an offering this week to try and bring our hearts back into a few pieces of the story that sometimes get overlooked. Um, in, in fact, the irony, and I don't think it is irony, that this year, Easter falls on April Fool's Day. April 1st, Easter Sunday, is April Fool's Day, and I think there's a playfulness to that. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to take us back into some of the story of Jesus. What I'm looking for this week is the emotional life of Jesus and some of the richness of the tapestry here in the story is actually found in the depth and the breadth and the color of his emotional life. And so I'm going to be borrowing from some of the really lovely excerpts in Beautiful Outlaw, some of the stories, the scriptures, um, and riffing on that a little bit as we walk through Easter week, as we look at, in particular, the emotional life of Jesus. So let's start in Matthew 16. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Don't you just love that? God bless Peter. I mean, just love his comfortableness in his relationship with Christ. Wouldn't you love that comfortableness, that confidence, the security in the relationship? (laughs) He takes him aside, and he begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men, Matthew 16. And as I say in chapter 4 in Beautiful Outlaw, which is entitled Fierce Intention. Hold on now. This doesn't sound very playful. What are we to make of the sudden mood changes that erupt from Jesus like thunder from a clear sky? If your children acted this way, you'd send them to their rooms. Whatever we have here, We certainly don't have a man of mild emotions or a two-dimensional passivity. 
For some reason, we keep forgetting that Jesus is operating in enemy territory. We project into the gospel stories a pastoral backdrop, the quaint charm of a Middle Eastern travel brochure, picturesque villages, bustling markets, smiling children, and Jesus wandering through it all like a son come home from college. We forget the context of his life and his mission. And what I point out to go on there in this chapter on fierce intention is you start with the birth of Christ and the massacre of the innocents. You have the flight to Egypt, and then you have Joseph awakened again in a dream and told that it's safe to come back, but they actually come back to Israel but relocate because they fear for his life. And then as Christ enters into his public years, a dangerous game of cat and mouse begins to play between Jesus and the authorities. Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. John 7, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Matthew 12, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. John 10. So surely you understand that Jesus is a hunted man. We can't understand his actions nor taste the richness of his personality until we set them within context. The man is operating deep behind enemy lines. This colors his extraordinary movements across the pages of the Gospels and helps to strip away that benevolent, religious fog that continues to creep into our reading. It also gives depth and poignancy to moments of self-disclosure, such as the Son of Man has no place to lay his head because he was hunted. But is it not more true to say that he is the hunter? Jesus begins a life in those last three years that accelerates in its confrontation with the religious, with the authorities, and obviously, most essentially, with the evil one. He's casting out foul spirits. He's doing miracles on the Sabbath. He is upsetting an entire regime. And of course, the Pharisees and the the Jewish leaders begin to fear that Rome— is going to come down on all of Israel because of this upstart, this rebel rouser, this troublemaker. And so they begin to plot his betrayal and his execution. But Jesus is a man on a mission, and his fierce intentionality is just breathtaking to watch this week. I say this, then he turns towards Jerusalem, turns toward the walled city like a general, turning his forces into the hottest part of the battle. A few honest Pharisees, Nicodemus, maybe, warn him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replies, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. This man will not be intimidated, will not be deterred, 
It certainly sets his rebuke of Peter when he tried to dissuade Jesus within its context, words that otherwise feel cutting and unnecessarily cruel. Yes, there is a leisureliness to Jesus. He'll stop whatever he's doing to attend to someone in need. The man never, ever seems to be in a hurry, but his manner can be appreciated only in light of a deeper river flowing through him. This fierce intentionality. Otherwise, you get these popular and ridiculous portraits of Jesus as the wandering storyteller, no more controversial or dangerous than a clerk in a health food store. Chesterton said this, the life of Jesus went as swift and straight as a thunderbolt, almost in the manner of a military march, certainly in the manner of the quest of a hero moving to his achievement or his doom. What I would point out there is that is exactly what he's doing. It looks like he's moving toward his doom. And certainly on Good Friday, it's just heartbreaking when you realize none of them knew the rest of the story. We read our interpretation of this week in light of all of the facts that we have afterwards, but you just look at this man moving straight into his death because he knows that it is his triumph. And so I go on to say, and in the most beautiful turn of events, the hunted becomes the hunter indeed. As Jesus crucified descends into hell personally to demand the keys from Satan. What was that journey like? far more than like a twilight walk to a cottage. He faces a creature way more terrifying than anything you've met in your nightmares and makes him bend the knee. And then Jesus simply turns and walks back out again, leading a train of rescued captives with him, only to race off and catch up with two disciples limping down a road toward a town called Emmaus. Okay, so in the emotional life of Jesus this week, you have this fierce intentionality. You have moments of incredible tenderness as when he is anointed at his dear friend's house in Bethany, anointed for his burial, and he receives it. He receives the affection. You obviously have the poignant night in Gethsemane and asking his friend, stay near me, stay near me. He wins. He breaks the power of sin and death. He atones for the human race. He literally gives his life to ransom us. It is a ransom payment from God to the evil one to rescue the human race. God buys back the human race by ransom through the sacrifice of Jesus. And now, Oh, the richness of his emotional life this week from the heartbreak on the cross, right? Father, Father, why have you turned your back on me? To his resurrection morning on Sunday. And let's pick up the story there. This is from Luke 24. That same day, which is Resurrection Sunday, two of his disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, they're leaving as you'll remember, because the whole thing has fallen apart. I mean, everyone fled at his crucifixion, except, of course, Mary and and John and a few of the very close ones who watched from a distance. So these disciples 
are going home. They're leaving everything that had been happening, all of the hopes. And it says they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And you just have to pause and go, why? Why? Why in heaven's name? You are resurrected. This is your day. This is fireworks and Mardi Gras and celebration. All of heaven is throwing a feast. You have your brokenhearted friends heading back out of town. They're going home. And Jesus comes up. And what is with the disguise? Why? Okay. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's like, what? What are you, new? Are you a tourist or something? How, how could you not know? This has been the epicenter of Jerusalem for the last 48 hours. And Jesus says to them, What things? Okay, you have got to be kidding me. Here are two of Jesus' disciples, as grief-stricken as human hearts can be. They think he's dead. They don't know the rest of the story. They don't know Christendom. They don't know the next 2,000 years of rescue and triumph and healing and persecution and triumph again. They know nothing of that, okay? They think it's all over. Now, if any moment cried out for good news from Jesus, it would be right here. Okay, again, how casually he enters the scene, this time as a traveler with a flight to catch. He just sort of huffs up alongside, again, hiding himself, as he later does on the beach, to let this play out. He asks what they're so upset about. Can you believe it? Cleopas can't. How is it possible that this stranger could have missed the things rocking Jerusalem the past few days? What things? Jesus inquires. Okay, as I go on to say in Beautiful Outlaw, if anyone knows what things, it is Jesus. These are his things, for heaven's sake. His most important things ever. He feigns ignorance. Friends, what do you do with this story? and the emotional life of Jesus. Okay, it goes on. It it gets wilder. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Okay, remember now, what is Jesus's mood on this particular Sunday morning, okay? Just his emotional life. Just a few hours ago, he walked out of the grave with the keys to hell swinging on his belt and the redemption of mankind in his pocket. 
would it be safe to say he's cheerful? Maybe even excited? Jubilant? (laughs) Friends, Jesus Christ is as happy as anyone has ever been in the history of the world. But so far, he's only appeared to Mary Magdalene. Isn't this moment crying out for him to reveal himself to these shell-shocked followers? Look, it's me. It's me. I'm alive. Everything's going to be okay. Rejoice. Tell the world. He doesn't. He carries on with the disguise, apparently for some time, holding forth on highlights from the Old Testament as the three of these people walk along. And then comes this unbelievable moment. We're still in the Gospel of Luke here in 24. As they approached the village to go where they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, no, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. Okay, they're not asking Jesus to stay with them. They don't know it's Jesus. This is just some guy they met on the road. They feel badly for him. He shouldn't be walking in the dark, you know? So they invite him into their home. They're urging this stranger to stay with them. So he went in to stay with them. He acted as if he were going further. Well, nice talking to you, chaps. I'm so sorry for your loss. Hope things turn out. But really, I've got to get going. What in the world? Christ takes up the role of an actor pretending to have to move on so that they have to beg him to stay? Oh, all right, if you insist. (laughs) When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and they had a celebration, and they embraced, and they spent the evening rejoicing over the resurrection. It says, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Poof. Okay. What do you make of his behavior? Now, honestly, what do you do with the facts of this story? Jesus' conduct is either A, bizarre, B, meant to drive home some spiritual lesson, which taken in the timing. This is the first thing he does on his resurrection morning, and his play acting is even more bizarre. Or C, it's playful. Given that this is the God of a playful creation on his resurrection morn, he who has been so playful with his followers and their years together, whom we see playing the inside joke on his closest friends a week from now, I'm putting my money on playful. Oh my gosh, the emotional life of Jesus this week just spans the range of all human experience in one seven-day period. And then we have got to go on to a week or maybe two after this encounter on the Emmaus Road. Okay, we're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and pick up Jesus after his resurrection. Okay? And it says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. (laughs) Okay. I love these little biblical notes of assurance. It's almost as if the the writer, John, in this case, knows, oh my gosh, they're just not going to believe this. How do I introduce this story? And he says, no, really, this 
actually took place. <laughs> okay, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay, so these are the guys who have some indication that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but apparently they haven't seen him for several days, maybe longer. And so they're just sitting around going, well, what should we do with ourselves? And Well, let's go fishing. <laughs> I love men. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Okay, what? What is with this encounter? Jesus doesn't say, come to me. Look, it's me again. I'm resurrected. I want to teach you more about the Bible. He says, hey, how's it going out there? Knowing full well exactly what's going on. And they think he's some joker. They don't even honor him with a response that literally one word, just like, get out of here. No, nothing. Shut up. Okay. And then he goes on. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's Jesus, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off. Apparently the guys are out there fishing in their boxers or naked and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish already on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Okay, from Beautiful Outlaw. So many things are delicious about this story. It's hard to know where to dive in. First, the boys have gone fishing. Can you blame them? The events of the past two weeks have been, to say, at the least, overwhelming. The emotional high of the triumphal entry, palm branches waving, everyone shouting Hosanna, and then it all crashed lower than anyone thought possible. Their beloved Jesus was tortured and executed and entombed. But then, fantastic beyond imagining, he appeared to them alive again, twice. Though at this moment, they're not sure where he's gone off to. Not really sure what to do next, unable to endure one more agonizing moment waiting around the house. They do what any self-respecting angler who needs to get out and clear his head does. They go fishing. Apparently, fishing naked are darn close to it. Notice that Peter needed to put his clothes back on. Now, again, notice how casually Jesus enters the scene. His best friends don't even know it's him. This is the resurrected Lord, mind you, ruler of the heavens and the earth. Think Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus could have announced his risen presence on the beach with radiant glory. He knows there's nothing in the world that would help his mates more than to see him again. 
He certainly could have shouted in his commanding way, It is I, the Lord, come thou unto me. He doesn't. He does the opposite. He hides himself a bit longer to let this thing play out. He simply stands on the shore, hands in his pockets like a tourist, and asks the question curious passerbys always do of fishermen. Catch anything? Okay. The nonchalance of the risen Christ here is absolutely intriguing. Whatever Jesus is up to, the moment is loaded for his next move. Okay, now two more things are needed to set the stage properly. Again, what would you say Jesus's emotional state is this particular morning? Okay, probably happy. Can we go with that? The man has conquered death, ransomed mankind, been restored to his father, his friends, and the world he made forever. He is in the afterglow of the greatest triumph, of the greatest battle in the history of the cosmos. I'm going to venture that he is one mighty happy man. Gang, Gethsemane is over, okay? The crown of thorns is over. Yes, those things are absolutely part of the story, but not anymore. Jesus is past all that now. Yes, he goes into the dark night of the soul, if you will, but he doesn't stay there. Jesus is risen. Jesus is fine. And Jesus knows that everything else is going to be fine. Okay, so that's his emotional state. And then you also have to have the reminder, how did these guys meet Jesus? Kind of what what was their first encounter together? It's back in Luke chapter 5, where he does the miraculous catch of fish the first time. Like, this is so beautiful because this is their story, right? Put out your nets, try the other side. You know, such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. They call their friends and they bring it in. And it says they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. So this has happened before. That's really crucial to understand it. That first miraculous catch, nets bursting, boats swamping. It must have felt like ages ago after all that has happened. But it was their story the way they got pulled into this whole revolution, okay? And now Jesus does it again, okay? They've pulled another all-nighter off the same beach. The boys are skunked again, and Jesus does it again. Try the other side. It's how he lets them know it's him. Okay, this has all the wink of an inside joke. That rich treasure of friendship, the running gag between mates where over and over again, all you need to do is start the first line and everyone starts cracking up. Try the other side, another jackpot, just like the good old days. Nothing more needs to be said. Peter is already in the water, thrashing for sure. Do you see the playfulness of Jesus? His timing, the tension, his hiddenness, a tourist-like question, the same lame suggestion from somebody they think knows nothing about fishing, and then bam, the catch, and the boys are hooked again. This is a beautiful story, made so much richer because of the playfulness and the emotional life of Jesus. I've been reading through the book of Hebrews recently, 
just happens to be where God has me right now. And I was enjoying, in chapter one, the author is just trying to put everyone's focus back on Jesus. And I love that, by the way. He says, yep, long ago and in other days, God has spoken to us through the prophets. But he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And he puts all the focus on Jesus, not on God generally, because God is a word that anybody can fill with meaning, right? Lots of people say they believe in God. He says, no, no, God has spoken through Jesus, okay? And then it says this of him. It says that he has set you, speaking of Christ, above all your companions, anointing you with the oil of joy. Don't you love that? Yes, Jesus is anointed with joy. Are you kidding me? It's the only way you can explain the Emmaus Road. It's the only way you can explain this story on the beach. And so what I think I want to do here in closing, as I've just tried to set before you just the emotional life of Jesus, I want to pray together that he would come into our emotional life. He knows the full spectrum. He knows everything and that he would give to us his joy. So Jesus, oh my, as we enter into this week, as we have moments, and for many of us it will only be moments, to think about you, to think about what you did, to think about the triumphal entry, and to think about Palm Sunday and the cursing of the fig tree, the confrontation with the Pharisees, the betrayal by Judas, the anointing in Bethany, to think about Gethsemane, to think about the Last Supper, to enter into Good Friday, and then, oh my goodness, Sunday and your behavior. Jesus, would you come into my emotional life, each one of us, come into our emotional life. Pray that you would enter into the full experience of our emotions, because you know it all. And Lord, most of all, and above all, would you anoint us with the oil of joy this week? Would you give to us your joy? Oh, Jesus, whatever else Whatever else is going on, would you give to us your joy? Give to us your joy this week. We celebrate with you, and we are really anxious for your return. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, thanks for joining me, John Eldridge, here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast, sharing some thoughts out of the scriptures and out of a beautiful outlaw on the emotional life of Jesus. And friends, if it's been a while since you read through Beautiful Outlaw, if you've never had the chance to read it, it will ah, bless you. It will open up Jesus to you in such wonderful ways and open up his personality. And so to try and make that available, uh, I know the team has got a deep special going on uh, on Beautiful Outlaw in our store this week. And so you can find that as well. And if you enjoyed 
this podcast, if it, if it brought you joy, the personality of Jesus, would you share it with someone? Let's spread this podcast. Let's invite other people to the feast. Have a wonderful, wonderful Easter week and resurrection morning.